Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the WFIU-WTIU newsroom. We're recording the show remotely today to avoid the risk of spreading COVID-19. I'm co-hosting with Sarah Whitmire, the WFIU-WTIU news director. We have a packed program today talking with city, county, IU, and health officials about the next steps in responding to COVID-19 and the next phase of the opening up prospects that we have here in Monroe County. Our guests are Julie Thomas, the Monroe County Board of Commissioners President, Mayor John Hamilton, Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton, Kathy Hewitt, the Monroe County Health Department Lead Health Educator, Dr. Tom Rismalis, an MD with IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians, and he specializes in infectious disease, and Kirk White, Assistant Vice President for Strategic Partnerships at Indiana University. You can follow us on Twitter today at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. As I said, we have a lot to talk about today, and I want to start with uh, Kathy Hewitt because the Monroe County Health Department has issued a new health order, and I know you've had a lot of input on it, but Kathy, if you could sort of explain what the new order says when it's gonna go into effect, I'd appreciate that. Okay, um, good afternoon, everybody. I am happy to do that. The new order that was um, created and signed by Dr. Sharp will actually go into effect on the 30th and it, it will last until June 15th. And what it does is it moves Monroe County into the stage three of the governor's back on track plan with the exception of the size for social gatherings. In size three for the state as a whole, the gathering size can be up to 100 people. In Monroe County, that'll be limited to 50 people. What are some of the key changes going from two to three? Uh, Some of the key changes would be that um, retail stores and and malls can increase their capacity to 75% and the mall common area will be 50%. Adult daycare services can open. Um, Raceways can open without spectators. Uh, And gyms and fitness areas can open with following guidance and restrictions. Okay, those are just a few. I'm sure we'll talk about more of them as we go along. Um, I wanted to ask uh, Julie Thomas, County Commissioner's President, and John Hamilton, the Bloomington Mayor, and Dr. Tom Rasmalis, who's a an infectious, infectious disease specialist to talk about, and, and I'll go with Julian and John first to talk about um, why it's okay to to move on to phase three. The state, the city and county, Monroe County has been um, a little slower to move forward. What are the indicators that you're looking at that, that say it's okay to move forward at this point? Uh, Julie, you wanna go first? Sure, thank you so much for uh, having us here today. Um, We are guided by the data and science that we get from um, IU Health Bloomington Hospital and also from, of course, our health department uh, and Dr. Sharp. So they're the ones who are looking at how all of these numbers work together. Uh, But we, some of those data points include um, the the bed usage at the hospital, but also um, the uh, infectious rate among those tested, and, and we're fairly low on that number. Uh, but there are there are so many computations that go into it, and, and we rely on their great uh, guidance uh, with data and science. And and it's but staying in these less restricted um, uh, times is going to require that people uh, wear face coverings when they're in public and keep social distancing, stay home if they're ill, get tested if they're ill and to wash their hands regularly. And that's a pledge that we've all signed. Um, <clears throat> it's going to be very important to do that in order to allow us to continue to loosen restrictions. 
Uh, but if things change, we will immediately follow the guidance of our health department and we will make things a little bit more restrictive because we want to protect the health of our community. All right, Mayor Hamilton. Can't hear you, uh, Mayor. May seem to have lost the mayor. So let me go on to uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Rosmalis. So what kind of things have you seen that that um, indicate that this is a good move? Um, from the standpoint of uh, uh, you know IU Health Bloomington Hospital, we have seen a significant decline in our inpatient census for COVID patients. Um, at present, we tend to have, whereas back in middle of April, my gosh, we probably had up towards 30 patients in the hospital at a time. Uh, we're, our census is running low, maybe you know three or four uh, cases at any one time. So we clearly have seen a decline and it's certainly much more manageable. Um, uh, the other insight that I think we could share from, from the hospital experience is that these measures that sometimes are unpopular, the social distancing, the wearing masks and things like that do indeed work. You know, we were on the, the hospital was on the front line of this. And initially we started isolating COVID patients and healthcare workers wearing personal protective equipment. And we found that that worked. It stopped transmission for, uh, to the uh, workers in the hospital. But we found that there were asymptomatic patients in the hospital who did indeed spread infection to other individuals and healthcare workers, not only our experience, but experience all across the country. What we've identified is that as soon as patients, for example, coming into the emergency room were put in masks and healthcare workers 100% of the time in all areas everywhere wore a mask all day long, all the time, all that transmission stopped. And so these mechanisms that can be used to help reopen the economy and can be used in the public are indeed effective and we have good evidence that they work. All right, so we have Mayor John Hamilton back. Uh, Mayor Hamilton, we were, I was asking about, um, you know, what were, the, what were the measures that you were looking at and how comfortable are you that it's a good time to move forward? Thanks, I'm sorry about getting dropped off, but uh, can you hear me now? Oh yes, sir. Okay, good. And uh, it's nice to be with you. I'll apologize about that. Um, and I didn't hear everything, but look, it's it's kind of a strange combination of very good health data that we have right now, as has been mentioned, the hospitalizations are low and the, the incidence overall appears to be low, though, of course, we don't really have good prevalence testing, which is a key thing. On the one hand, that data is good, on the other hand, um, you know, national information and kind of the experts talking about where we're headed over the next months is very concerning. So I appreciate uh, Dr. Tom, I'll call him that. He, he's my doctor, nice to, hear, nice to see you, Tom. So um, hear you. Um, it, it, we, we have this strange combination of where, on the one hand, the data look good here uh, now, uh, on the other hand, we hear really significant concerns about resurgence and, and problems. And I think, I think what I would say most is let's, let's really think about the cost benefit uh, of, of the incidences doing things like wearing masks and continuing to limit social gatherings and large gatherings. Those, we can do those things without a high cost in a lot of ways. Sometimes it's a pain and it's, you know, we don't, we, we don't like it, but if those things can really help us avoid a resurgence or potential resurgence, they, they do seem quite important to me. Uh, so I think we have to be very careful. I, I don't, I actually do not like going to 50 people uh, for, for gatherings. I think, I think that's, from my perspective, that's a little, we need to let the data catch up and see where we go. So let me clarify, Mayor, the, the 50 people, is still the, the 50 people are still supposed to practice social distancing so they shouldn't be closer than six feet from each other correct well there, we recommend that but mm -hmm. there, there is not a legal order that is enforceable so far as i know 
in, for example, on somebody's lawn or somebody's home, there, there's no, there's no legal requirement that people do that. We, we don't have requirements that people wear masks. We encourage it. We don't have requirements uh, that custom that customers at a restaurant wear masks. We require workers to wear masks in restaurants, but not in retail places. So, there's a lot of really good practices that we can and should encourage. Uh, but it's a question of, you know, what is, what is the requirement um, that, we, that we are going to uh, uh, live under? All right. Well, let, let me welcome uh, Kirk White back. Welcome back, Kirk, and thank you for your service. Um, I want to ask about the university's plans. There are a lot of plans that were released this week. So, you know, I don't want you to go through the entire plan, but if you could just uh, give a highlight or two. And what went into the idea that, that you you do want to bring students back in the fall. Thanks, Bob, and, and it is good to be back and I appreciate uh, joining the uh, group of leaders today on the call. Uh, yes, the uh, university did announce this week that uh, we want to get our operations back up and running. Uh, we've had over 180 different uh, faculty, staff, and students working on planning. This continues, of course, well through the summer, but uh, um, I think the, the most important thing that uh, we see in Bloomington is that it's essential as a residential campus to drive on with our research, with our teaching, uh, with our service, because it's essential to the state and to the nation, the things that we're doing. And so that's why uh, we're going to work even harder over the next couple of months to make sure that we can come back safely uh, in the fall uh, in really three, uh, three, uh, three pieces of the academic calendar uh, with fall semester starting on the 24th of August, running through the 20th of December, and a special uh, new winter session, which would be an intensive session, all online or at distance, 30 November through the 7th of February. And then spring semester would be 19 uh, January through the 8th of February, with all online until the 8th of February. And then we would start some in-person uh, on the 9th of, of February. So, so essentially students would be here until Thanksgiving and then not come back until February 7th, right? Uh, that's right. Uh, they could come back sooner, um, uh, but uh, the instruction would be online until, until the 9th of February. And we've, we've cut out the Thanksgiving and spring uh, holidays because we want to limit the amount of, of travel and additional exposure. Sarah? We've gotten a number of questions. Um, this one for you, Kirk, it's actually a two-parter. How will the university work with and educate the community about staying safe this fall after students return? And then the second part, how will it work with businesses that are favorites of students? Well, those are good questions. And I, you know, as, as I've talked to Provost Rebel uh, and looked at the planning that the campus is doing, uh, she sees this as an extraordinary opportunity for us to, to educate this generation of students about their responsibilities in society and to each other. And that's what we're gonna focus on. Uh, it will be intensive education for our students. It will, uh, they will be required to sign a, a commitment of responsibility. We'll have some online uh, courses that explain the kinds of safety and responsibility things they should do with the normal protocols that we've all discussed. Um, and we're hoping that of course they will follow this not just on campus, but uh, off campus as well. It's much more difficult for us to, to enforce that off campus, but uh, uh, we will work with the community as we always have, whether it be in, in uh, off-campus housing or other safety initiatives. We're committed to doing that because uh, we're interdependent. The city, the campus, the county, uh, we all have to work together. If you have questions or comments for our panelists today, you can uh, email us at uh, news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also uh, follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So we, um, I think to follow up on that question with, with Kirk White and with the mayor and, and Julie uh, Thomas, the 
idea of the students coming back, I think, does make a lot of people nervous because, you know, as one business owner I was talking to this morning who actually sent us that question, um, you know, her business is still open. She sees a lot of students now who, you know, never didn't leave. And, they, you know, they come in groups. They don't social distance. They don't wear masks. Um, you know, how, how are you going to bring the... Uh, how are you going to bring the community people together with the university to talk about these off-campus behaviors and try to, to work on that? And I guess I'll start with the mayor first. I mean, how involved have you been in these conversations with the university? Well, we work very closely with the university, our largest employer, large, largest institution, an integral part of the city. And we work regularly. Lauren Rebell, the provost, is meeting two or three times a week with us. Um, and, I, and, and we will continue to do that. And it, it is a challenge. Um, I think the, the education uh, is critically important on this, but we, we're gonna have a, and I, I think the word Provost Robel, there may be some cognitive dissonance. That's a fancy IU word, I guess, for, for there, there may be very strict regimens on campus for mask wearing and for uh, behaviors but stepping off campus under the rules that may come both from the state and from uh, local authorities as we are, they may be very different rules. Now, how you get a population to accommodate both of those, um, and, and it's, it's complicated because the health indicators are very good right now, but we also, it's kind of like you see a radar forecast of what may be coming at you. And you're like, well, why should I put up boards on my windows now? It seems good. But I do think we're going to have, we'll be talking, and I know we will, about how to manage uh, this uh, because public health is the first priority. And there may be a number of things that we can do that really protect health and support the economic re re restoration that we all want to see happen by doing some things that, that may make all of that smoother. So it's, it's tricky in each state, you know, you see states doing different things and different communities. And I look forward to working with the university on this. And I know they will be uh, very intensive as they have been very intentional about how to keep everybody in their community safe, which is also our community. Anything to add commissioner uh, Thomas? Sure. Um, I'll just add that we do get questions uh, from uh, business owners and others in the community who say, you know, why don't you require uh, the use of face coverings in public? And, and the issue is enforcement. Um, we certainly don't um, have that kind of capability to roam through the community and, and ticket people. And uh, it's, it's a very difficult thing. So, so we focus on the positive aspect of it. We wear our face coverings as a sign of respect and caring for the community and we ask our residents to do the same. Um, those who choose not to, um, they're sending a signal and, and, it's, and it's, so it's important to, uh, to thank those who do wear their face coverings, who do practice social distancing, who are doing the right things because that allows our economy to rebound locally. It allows us to, to live in a less restricted environment um, and so we do continue to ask people to follow those guidelines. Kathy, we got a question for you wondering if the new stage that's going to take effect, whether the gathering size includes churches. Okay, that's a really good question. So thank you. No, it does not um, include churches. Churches do not have a gathering limit. Um, we are asking though, because of the situation that they still do virtual services if possible, but there is no limit on the actual service. Um, there's a caveat though, gathering size limits do include things that can go along with the actual church service like um, wedding receptions or funeral services after the gathering size. That applies to the limit, but not the actual church service part. And I assume you're giving guidance about things like communion and those sorts of things. Uh, I know that we have talked with uh, many church leaders and there are ways that they can do it. Uh, people can bring their own and participate. Um, they should not share any resources or pass things hand to hand. Okay, and just another quick question here for you, Kathy. 
Uh, this is from Melinda, and she wants to know what is the difference between positive tests and COVID cases? Does a positive test constitute a case? So does a positive yeah, I'm just, I'm thinking through it. Um, it depends on how they're actually using it. Um, positive tests can mean all the tests that were positive and a positive case would be all the people who were positive. So some people may have gotten more than one positive test. Okay, I think that, yeah, that makes, that makes some sense. Good. We haven't, we've had a lot of questions about contact tracing and um, not sure who the best person to answer this is. Maybe you, Kathy. Um, but you know, one of them had to do with the churches. If you have or a large social gathering, you know, are, do we have enough to to do the contact tracing necessary if there is a large social gathering? Beyond yes. that, okay, good. Let let me uh, ask you. Well, go ahead and, and answer that, and then I've got another question to ask. Okay, the state has hired over 500 people to do contact tracing for the state of Indiana. So they have enough resources, plus there's other people, other state workers and, and even local workers that can be pulled in to help as needed. So there should be enough people to handle that. Um, okay, the other, we've had about three different questions come to us asking, can they apply to be a contact tracer? They wanna help. They should contact the um, Indiana State Department of Health. They are the ones that are for hiring for that. Okay. Dr. Tom, I wanted to ask you, I wanted to bring you in. I'm, I would imagine that, you know, now that we're continuing to open up a little more, again, what, what are, uh, I, I doubt that the, the key things have changed much, but have you seen certain things that are helping more than others? You mentioned the wearing of the face mask. Are there other key things that are going to help us as we, as we start to open up? Yes, this is, of course, a very moving target, and we've been learning a lot over time. I, I emphasize to people that this is a dangerous virus. This is, uh, it causes a lot of, uh, can cause a lot of uh, serious illness. I think uh, about 10 days ago, the South Central region of IU Health, we discharged our 100th patient. And I know in the South Central region, which includes inpatient facilities, you know, Bloomington, Bedford, Paola, we've had about 29 deaths. And so this is not a, a minor uh, illness. Um, the, the two other comments I would make is, as we've learned more, we've learned how to treat it in the, in the hospital setting, much better than we did before. We have access. Uh, here in Bloomington to both the convalescent plasma that people have been uh, heard about and the uh, emergency use drug remdesivir. And we're using both of those in, in patients uh, that need it. And so we've gotten better about how to manage uh, cases. In terms of opening up and prevention, I would just emphasize what other individuals here have already said. And that is there are just times when there are vulnerable individuals in our community and businesses that are taking, that are at risk. Um, and in those times, you know, it's gonna require some special effort on the part of all the rest of us uh, in terms of following these rules, following the pledges, following the, the, uh, the um, personal protective equipment, the masks and, the, and so forth. And this is just one of those times. And I think we all got to step up and do it. I think if we can do that, if we can convince everybody that's the right way to do it, if we can get the Indiana University students to cooperate, we can be okay. And everyone's concern and worry is how successful will we be? So okay. another question that we got, uh, this one is from Laura, and I think uh, Dr. Tom, you might be able to answer this, but she says, if cases and deaths both continue to increase, but hospital beds and ventilators are at acceptable levels, does everything then remain open? So maybe Dr. Tom, you can chime in and then Kathy. Well, I would say that these things will go hand in hand. If we start seeing an increase in cases and in our community and an increase in community spread, we will see an increase in hospitalizations and deaths. I mean, so 
Uh, it's not one or the other, unfortunately. Um, yes, I, I can agree with that. One thing we also um, need to pull into this though is we've had an increase in testing. Uh, we have a new facility that's doing a lot more testing now, so our numbers may go up. Hopefully our deaths will stay the same. But uh, as when you test more for a disease, you often find more cases. So it might just be related to that as well. But we're watching the numbers every day. We're watching it from multiple sources. And if we see a surge, we're definitely going to be talking uh, with the hospital and trying to ensure that we're doing everything we can to keep the numbers as low as we can. Kirk White, I know you uh, are going to have to leave us a little early. You've still got 15 minutes or so to be with us, but I wanted to, to follow up with you about something you said earlier. You talked about, you know, uh, the provost, Lauren Robel, who wrote quite an eloquent piece for the faculty, staff, and, and students who might have read it. Um, what kinds of education efforts are going to be done. I mean, are these going to be, you know, outside of the regular academic classroom or, you know, you said they have to sign a pledge. How are you going to make sure people read the pledge? How diligent can you be? Well, that's a good question. And we've, uh, we've had some experience with this because we asked students to, uh, to agree to other pledges as they, as they become as they become students, uh, for, for example, at the freshman induction ceremony, we ask them to, to uh, uh, agree to a code of conduct uh, for the campus and uh, uh, for their activities while they're a student. And uh, um, what is being looked at now is uh, perhaps a special uh, online uh, class that would uh, would be required for students to go and complete that would be on our online uh, delivery platform on canvas so that they could uh, like any other class they would need to take this to understand exactly what the expectations are and the importance of them following it all and you have to remember of course that you know our students come from all kinds of backgrounds uh, some uh, some countries that they come from for example are very comfortable with all this and are used to it others aren't if you're in a rural Indiana community, uh, in many cases, this is not a priority and it's not a problem. And so we've got to get them uh, up to speed with what our expectations here are at the Bloomington campus. All right. I know with, uh, you know, you're going to have some faculty that are going to be more comfortable going into the classroom than others because of age, pre-existing conditions. I would assume that is the same. I know it's the same with students. Uh, you know, I've known students who have had autoimmune disease of some sort that caused them to miss class already. I mean, how are you going to deal with those kind of issues when, you know, you're going to have some people that just aren't ready to go back into the classroom. That's right. And uh, we're working on ways to accommodate uh, uh, both faculty and students, but, and staff as well. Uh, if, uh, if you're in a vulnerable category, uh, uh, you may still be able to uh, uh, take the class online uh, and then interact where things are, are comfortable for you. Uh, and you can, uh, uh, you can interact in a, in a safe environment. We're working to make those things happen through distancing. For example, we're We'll be shrinking the, the capacity of all the classrooms significantly, perhaps by two thirds in some cases, so that we can maintain that six foot distancing in large uh, classrooms or whatever size the classroom might be. Yeah, I, I heard a number, I, I think that uh, the university is saying for six foot distancing, every student would need 55 square feet. Yes, that's quite that's, a few more than they usually have. Absolutely. It's, you know, what we're talking about here is a major change. Things will not be the same as we've expected them. This will not be business as usual when we come back. And we will, we're going to, we're working now to explain that to students as they start to look at the fall. Orientation starts in mid-June. We'll start with that and with our new students. And then, of course, with the continuing students as they get ready to, to come back as well. This will be different times. Okay. Sarah? Kirk, we've gotten a couple questions about students wearing masks. Um, 
Sherry says, I haven't seen a student wearing a mask yet. And then we got another question. I guess Sherry's maybe more of a comment, but another question saying, why can't we just make it a requirement rather than recommending it? Well, on uh, campus, uh, we're going to uh, issue masks to everyone. So that's going to be part of uh, coming back to campus is that you're going to get masks. We've ordered uh, through our procurement services, ordered uh, uh, masks so that we can issue them to everybody. They're reusable and uh, that will be an expectation at that point. All right. I wanted to ask uh, Mayor Hamilton and Julie Thomas, just sort of a, well, sorry, I think Sarah's got some more questions. Sarah, go ahead. Don't mean to step on you. A lot of, a lot of the questions we are getting are about contact tracing. So Kathy, maybe you can just help explain this a little bit more for folks who um, are, are confused about it. Um, so this one is, who do contact tracers contact? everyone the positive person had close contact with in the recent past or everyone the person has passed? Okay, um, the contact tracers contact everybody they've had close contact with during the time or that when that person was infectious, which would have been two days before they started symptoms up to 14 days. So, but it's close contact. So it's not just everybody that they've walked by or everybody that they've been in a room where it's close contact, so. Okay. And then um, I think you uh, addressed this earlier, but if someone has an interest in being a contact tracer, all of that goes through the State Department of Health? Correct. Okay. So it does not matter on their location anywhere in the state. I'm sorry? Um, where? So, like, we've gotten questions about whether they can just come to the health department and fill out a form. No, that would, they would go through the Indiana State Department of Health for that. Okay. It's probably a good point to say we've had over 700 people ask us questions, 700 different questions have come in and some have been from various parts of the state. So we're trying to get to as many of them as we can. And we, we really appreciate you all being here with us today. And if you have questions for us, if you're at home and have questions, you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can uh, follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Wanted to ask um, Mayor Hamilton and Julie Thomas just about more of a, an economics thing. What's this mean to the city's budget and the county's budget? How has this affected uh, budgeting? How will this affect budgeting this summer? Mayor, you want to go first? Okay. Um, well, it's going to hit the budgets. Um, we know we're going to have, we've already seen significant reduced revenue in certain categories of food and beverage tax and innkeepers tax and gas tax and a number of places. Um, the two main ongoing sources for, for city government are property taxes and income tax. And we expect, particularly on the income tax, we'll see some reductions. Uh, the good news is the city and I think the county too are in good fiscal shape. We've been very prudent and have built reserves up in rainy day funds. And this is a rainy day. Uh, so we're going to be focused on maintaining the essential services, which we have been doing. But frankly, I also believe government's role is a is a counter cyclical role when when the economy is bad. And when people are hurting, that's when government often needs to do the most to step in and try to reduce the suffering and damage and accelerate the recovery. So we'll be doing both of those things. And there's a lot of pencils sharpened and work going on to the 2021 budget and maybe even some supplemental work this year to try to try to do what we can, but it's going to be complicated. Julie Thomas, same question. Sure. Thank you. Um, it's a great question. Um, the uh, commissioner's role is legislative and executive and the county council's role is fiduciary. And I know the county councilors are taking this event very seriously. They're working through a number of different models uh, for what may happen and how we can respond effectively. Um, as the mayor pointed out, uh, we do have a um, healthy rainy day fund and um, we are able to be flexible yet still provide the efficient and effective uh, government services that we're known for. Um, we've, been, we've utilized some of the food and beverage funding uh, as the city has um, to assist the small businesses in our community to ensure that once we do open up uh, to a less restrictive environment that those, you know, it's the, it's the heartbeat of our, of our um, community's economy, 
that those small businesses are able to um, come back. We've given grants of um, over $197,000 to 25 uh, local businesses outside the city of Bloomington that are connected with uh, tourism. And we're really proud of that. And, and we're really um, glad to see that we're keeping these businesses afloat so that we can have a vital community once this pandemic is over, whenever that may be. We've gotten a couple questions about masks. We have one for you, Julie, and then one for the mayor. But Julie, first, could the county require or strongly encourage grocery stores to hand out masks at the entrance? That's from David. Right. It, we, we do encourage it. We encourage um, any business to um, provide uh, masks if they can for uh, customers or to require customers to be wearing a mask if, if they cannot provide them. Um, it's really up to each business just as um, a business will make a decision that they won't um, uh, have a customer without shoes on in their business, right? That's something that each business can control. Um, and again, the issue of requirement is, is tricky because um, it, it's very difficult for us to police and enforce the whole community in that way. Um, and so we really just want to appeal to people's better nature uh, to focus on having that respect for others uh, by wearing a face covering. Yeah, I imagine, Mayor, you're probably going to answer this question kind of the same. Um, this question is from Denise, and she says, many people in my precinct are wondering how mandating mask wearing can move forward. They have asked the question and had local governing agency give them a different reply or just not respond. <laughs> well, that's never encouraging, but uh, I actually, actually, I think we could require masks. Uh, the governor could require mask wearing and he, we have in certain settings, but we could do it. We could require every customer in a restaurant to, to, or, or a retail store, uh, uh, to, to, to wear a mask. Uh, certain numbers of States have done it. Ohio and Kentucky, our neighbors have much more, uh, extensive mask requirements. We could do that locally. That would tend to come from the health department would need to put that in place unless the city did a separate declaration, which we've worked really hard to make it a consistent approach. Uh, but we absolutely, in my view, could require masks more extensively than the state does if we feel the health of our community demands it. And I, I do think it's worth exploring that. Enforcement is difficult to be sure, uh, but you know, enforcement is often difficult. But if, if the health if the health data and demands tell us that the cost of that is worth the benefit as we see it, uh, then that's really important. Again, we have very good data right now. We don't, we don't have a lot of instances, but I'll just make one very quick point. The, the prevalence testing that was done at the state level a few weeks ago showed that 2.8% of Hoosiers have had this disease either currently or in the past, recent past. That's 10 times more than we know about. And 45% of those people who were tested were pretty much asymptomatic, meaning they really didn't know it. So it's really important to be sensitive to this protecting each other, uh, even if you, you may feel great, but you may still be a carrier. So the mask and the distancing are, are orders that we have put in place in very limited ways at the state and local level, but we could do more. Before we lose Kirk, I want to ask a question that we just got. Um, the question is about dorms and just saying with single occupancy dorm rooms, is it going to be the responsibility of RAs to check on student health and help with contact tracing? Will RAs be getting training? Yes, uh, you know, our, uh, our residential programs and services staff, uh, the, the RAs on each of the floors uh, have a responsibility to uh, support the students no matter the situation, and this one's no exception, uh, we as a university will do contact tracing. So uh, in cooperation with uh, uh, state and local authorities, uh, but we will, we will be able to, to assess, you know, who's in what areas uh, so we can assist the local authorities in, in doing that tracing. That's not going to be all a responsibility of residential programs and services. Uh, there'll be 
uh, as part of uh, uh, as part of the comprehensive effort that includes uh, the IU Health uh, arrangement that we have to uh, to provide telehealth and uh, uh, testing. Uh, this all comes together so that we can uh, take care of the university population as a whole. All right, Kirk White, thank you very much for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. Bob, I can stay on a little bit longer. I, uh, my other meeting uh, was uh, canceled, so uh, well, we're I'm happy to have you. Thank yeah, you. We're, we're happy to have you. Uh, I have a question for uh, Dr. Rismalis. Um, we still continue to see, mainly on social media, um, claims that, you know, this isn't that much more. Now, people aren't saying it's not as serious as the flu, but people will say that's not that much more serious than the flu or people suggesting that, you know, this is a hoax of some sort. And you as a healthcare professional, can you just talk about, um, you know, the facts when it comes to COVID-19 and, and why all these measures are really necessary? Oh. It's it, it's interesting both to look at data that comes in, you know, nationally and internationally, and what we're experiencing here locally. I mean, I can say very clearly that we have never seen in the 30 years that I've been in practice the degree, the severity of illness from influenza. Um, we've never had uh, 10 people on ventilators at the same time in the hospital from the flu. Um, and part of that is not because influenza is a benign disease, it certainly can be serious, but influenza has circulated for in the population forever. And so some a good percentage of the population has some degree of immunity, we have a vaccine for it that can protect a lot of people. So it doesn't rise to the level of severity. I constantly see in the news media people quoting, well, the mortality for influenza is uh, 0.1%, and this is really not a whole lot bet, uh, higher, but people need to remember that those numbers are estimates and calculations, and the estimate for influenza is based on projected cases and so forth as well, and it's probably not accurate. The mortality for influenza is probably significantly lower than 0.1%, and I think there's good data to suggest that the mortality of COVID is probably at least 10, perhaps 15 times greater than, uh, than seasonal, uh, seasonal flu. Uh, mixed with the fact that, um, that there's no immunity to this virus in the population. As uh, Mayor Hamilton mentioned, 2.8% of the uh, citizens of, of Indiana have, have evidence of having had this. That leaves 97% plus um, susceptible. And so, uh, it is more serious, and it's pretty obvious if you've taken care of patients or if you've been in the hospital and you've watched these cases, it's certainly more serious than the flu. Sarah? Kirk, we got a question about football, which you might not be able to answer yet, um, but it's just, is Indiana University going to take steps like Ohio State University, and if so, who will get priority for tickets and what will you be doing about the suites? Yeah, that's a question I can't answer yet. Uh, a lot of that depends on uh, what the conferences decide to do and CAA and Big Ten uh, and their guidance. That's going to be one level of it. Of course, uh, our university will, uh, will, will take a look at those, those cases as well. I think in general, uh, everyone's looking at uh, where are we in the ability to to uh, to be able to do the the testing and uh, and tracing and uh, that will impact uh, whether there will be uh, athletics as we know it in the fall. But uh, as I said earlier, things are going to be different uh, because we're we're in because of the environment. Okay, I just thought of something else I wanted to ask Dr. Tom about the influenza issue, and that is the the effects, you know, for people who don't die. I've been reading a lot about how seriously damaged people can be from COVID um, if they if they make it through and they get out of the hospital. How how they may have long lasting, even lifelong effects. So, is, are the you know the side effects if you survive the disease are the the issues that you may have after it, are they more serious than influenza? Well, we have seen 
after COVID uh, cases, uh, fairly prolonged recovery in some patients where people struggle with symptoms for quite some time. Uh, perhaps most alarming in that category are these individuals who have uh, an increased risk of blood clots forming, both in terms of strokes, heart attacks, pulmonary emboli, things of that sort, which is not something that we typically see with the flu and probably reflects the degree of inflammatory uh, response to this virus. So yes, uh, and we're learning as time goes on, um, but uh, there are additional complications, cardiac complications, uh, even in healthy individuals who've had, um, who've had COVID, there seem to be uh, heart complications at least for a few weeks afterwards that can develop. And so, yeah, um, uh, a lot of unique uh, longer term manifestations. All right, thank you for that. I uh, wanted to ask Kathy Hewitt next. We've had a lot of questions. Uh, we always have a lot of questions about testing. Um, can you sort of update us on Monroe County's testing capability now and who tests are available to and, and who are the people that should be getting them? Okay, we have a new testing site that's being run by Quantum and it is on South Walnut out in the National Guard Armory. Um, they're encouraging anybody who is over the age of 65 or at high risk um, from underlying health conditions to go get a test. Um, that information is, you can find that contact information on the Indiana State Department of Health website, along with information on how to contact IU Health. They are also doing testing for people who are symptomatic. Um, people can also get tested at Monroe Hospital. So, and CVS out in Ellettsville is also doing testing now. So, none of these are, yeah, none of these are walk-up sites. I know we had a, we had a question uh, yesterday, I think that, you know, is there a place that I can go and just, you know, walk up and stand in line and get a test? No, there is no walk-in. All of them do require appointments, but the contact information is all available on the Indiana State Department of Health coronavirus um, webpage. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm going to admit my age. I'm, I'm over 65. So if I, if I do go out and get a test, what's the value of me knowing if I, you know, if I have the virus or not? If I, I'm asymptomatic and I wear a mask, what's the value to me? Well, if you know, you can still take those precautions to make sure that you're not infecting anybody else. But with this test, will, if you're asymptomatic, there's not a huge benefit if you're not having symptoms. Um, all it would tell you that is that you're infected right now and then to make sure to isolate yourself. Um, but if you do have symptoms, then it is even more benefit so that you would know whether you would be infected. So it's, it's a good idea anyway. It's still a good idea <laughs> right. and stuff. They also do want to find prevalence. So if how many people are asymptomatic who are carrying the disease. So. All right. So, um, Mayor Hamilton and, and Julie Thomas and Kat and uh, Kathy Hewitt to a degree. So what's what's next? What 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 are the next steps that uh, Bloomington and Monroe County would have to have to move even further? Of course, we haven't gotten to, to phase three yet, but you'll be looking for certain things during phase three, I assume. What are those things? Yeah. Uh you name me first, I guess I'll go. I know, uh, and certainly want to hear from the others. Uh, I, I look, I want to make a, a point generally, which is we have heroes among us in the healthcare system, both in hospitals like Dr. Tom and his many, many, many colleagues, as well as Kathy Hewitt and her colleagues in our public health system. I do want to note that Indiana is dramatically underinvested in our public health system. Among the countries, uh, our state is among the lower very low in terms of the investment in public health. And of course, this has helped demonstrate the gaps in our overall healthcare system where people, uh, we have, the, the healthcare system has stepped up, but hospitals are under severe pressure. Some, some are under severe fiscal pressure. They've been laying off people, not at IU Health, thankfully, but this has demonstrated how important it is to invest in the infrastructure to protect ourselves. We've talked a lot about, and I can talk Till the cows come home about the importance of individual actions, which are incredibly important, but we need to recognize how important public investment in these fundamental uh, protections are, and we're not where we need to be on those. All right. We, we ha have had a couple other quick questions that have come in, and I, 
I do want to get to. I know we've talked about this numerous times, but this is just a comment from somebody, and I'd like for somebody to address this comment. The wearing of face masks outside of hospital settings is theater, this, this listener says, not medicine. Dr. Tom? Well, in, in terms of wearing a, a face mask, there are two uh, situations in which it has been shown not to be theater, but to be very effective. One is if you are infected, particularly if you're asymptomatically infected, it is very effective in preventing you from spreading the infection to other individuals uh, who you come in close contact with. Uh, secondly, to protect an individual. And it's been shown to be effective in that setting as well. So there may be little value in wearing a face mask if you're outdoors, maintaining social distancing and so forth. But if you're coming into close contact with people, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that they are indeed of benefit. And in my mind, what a minor inconvenience it is to protect vulnerable people, and not only people, but to protect the businesses that people are going into and out of. I mean, if you cause infection or bring infection into a business, infect uh, wait staff or anything else, you've, hurt, you've harmed that business. And so they are effective. And I think for the benefit of both people and for businesses, they make a lot of sense. I have another medical question, doctor. Someone asked about ventilators and you know, when does the hospital decide to put a patient on a ventilator? At what stage of the illness? So the ventilators are utilized when uh, you can't maintain oxygenation uh, with simple supplemental oxygen or masks or um, nasal cannula oxygen. When you can't keep someone oxygenated, uh, then you use a, uh, a, you use a ventilator. Uh, we've been very fortunate here in South Central Region. I think our capacity uh, is about 75 ventilators without going into um, using uh, equipment that's not in, entirely designed for that purpose, uh, operating room equipment and things like that. And uh, we've always, we've, we've never come close to, to maxing out our utilization. But um, so the most severely ill people where you can't keep them oxygenated. Okay, thanks for that answer. We've, we've gone through a lot of questions today and we are now out of time. I wanna thank all of you for being here. It's been a great program. Thank you to Julie Thomas, Mayor John Hamilton, to Dr. Tom Rosmalis, to Kirk White and to Kathy Hewitt, for my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, for our producers, Benta Boutier and John Bailey and Matt Stonecipher, for engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. More at bloomhf.org.